0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. In graduate school, I was asked to write a paper exploring my family relationships sounds simple enough straightforward enough but the thing is i was asked to explore not just my immediate family relationships but to go back a generation not even a generation but actually two generations and i realized at that moment though i live my story i don't really know my story And so I started asking questions. I started exploring the details of my family relationships generations back with people I've never talked to before in relationship to that. Well, in a way, whenever we study the Bible, we are doing the same thing because the Bible is a true story of the world. And when we become followers of Jesus, this story, in a way, becomes our story. The language that the Apostle Paul uses is like a gardening metaphor. We are engrafted, and this therefore becomes our story. The problem is we don't really know our story. We live our story, but we don't know it. And this is why I'm glad we're walking through Hebrews together, because Hebrews, like my graduate school professor, requires that we learn our story. We can't really walk through Hebrews together without exploring the past generations before us. And not just his generation, I'm talking about Jesus, but even before that. This morning, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We also have scripture journals you're free to have. If you turn to Hebrews 7, you will quickly realize that we will encounter a few key people in the story of God generations and generations ago. Abraham, named Abram in our text, the Levites, the tribe of Israel. But we'll spend most of our this morning on an obscure person in our story with the name Melchizedek. The Old Testament, I looked this up, contains 23,145 verses. Of them, Melchizedek gets four. The Hebrews... Devotes an entire chapter plus on Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews obviously thinks this ancient family member is very, very important. And why is that? Well, this morning we're going to find out. And to do that, we are actually going to read the entire chapter 7 of Hebrews together. Which in our kind of insta culture, in our sort of YouTube shorts culture, that sounds like a stretch, okay? So there's coffee in the hallway, buckle your seatbelts. Um, and let's go. So this is Hebrews 7. I'll read it. I'll maybe stop from time to time to explain some things if there's stuff that I feel like is a little bit confusing. But for the most part, we're just going to let this air out. And here's why this is important. The ancient congregation that I keep talking about, that Hebrews keeps talking about, this is exactly how they received Hebrews. Hebrews is a sermon. It's an ancient sermon. It's probably the most ancient sermon we have. And so there is such wisdom in just reading the thing. Straight, which I'll do now. Let's. I'll invite you to follow along. This is Hebrews chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem or Jerusalem, later will be called priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, or Shalom, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, Jesus, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office, the Levites, have a commandment in the law to make tithe to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, does not have his descent from them. This man received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of, of Melchizedek, rather than the one after the order of Aaron. So that's contrasting two priesthoods. There's a priesthood of Levi. And here now we're being introduced to another kind of priesthood, a priesthood of Melchizedek. Verse 12, For there is a change, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from whom no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So I don't think it's really ever a problem in our minds when we think about Jesus. Often we say Jesus is king, and that checks, because, you know, kings come from Judah. We'll often say Jesus is priest. I'm sorry, prophet. Well, that checks too, because Jesus is a prophet like Moses. And then we just sort of glide into speech and say, He's also a priest, obviously. But that was a major, major contention to the original audience. Because how could Jesus, who's from Judah, be a priest, which is supposed to be from Levi? Problem solved, according to Hebrews, in God's providence. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, thinking of the Levites, but by the power of an indestructible life, the resurrection of Jesus. For it is witness to him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That is a quote from Psalm 110, Andrew just read that for us. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, quoting Psalm 110 again, "...the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever." Now, in Psalm 110, they're talking about this longed-for forever king, also called the Messiah, this forever king who will make all things right. And we have this strange verse in the middle of Psalm 110, and Hebrews is pointing this out to us, so we do not miss it. This strange turn of phrase, that this forever king will also be a forever priest. And the Lord swears that this will happen. Verse 22, This makes Jesus the guarantor innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, because Jesus isn't a sinner. And then for those of the people. Why? He did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son of, who has been made perfect forever. Now, I'm tempted to stop here, but there's one final verse that's important, and it might be the question on your mind. What's the point? What's the point? Well, Hebrews tells us verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a oh, hundred. What kind of high priest is Jesus? What well, we just read about. Let's just pray briefly before we dig in. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts on your word this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer? And by your spirit, would we not just learn new information, though I'm sure that will happen this morning? Would we instead, or in addition to that, encounter you, Jesus, in your beauty? And we ask this in the name of Jesus, Amen. Last week, uh, waiting in line at Walgreens, I had a disturbing encounter with Jesus. Here's what I mean: uh, Walgreens was trying to get rid of their Jesus themed magazines for the holidays. You know what I'm talking about? Those like special edition Newsweeks and stuff that promises to unlock the hidden mysteries of Jesus that you that nobody has unearthed before. Um, well, it turns out supply outpaced demand at Walgreens for these magazines. And so they stacked them near the checkout, hoping folks might buy leftovers, happy new year gifts, or something. I don't know. And that's where I had my disturbing encounter with Jesus, because I came face to face with this kind of Anglo-Saxon Jesus, who looked like me in every way except the flowing Renaissance hair, like, and the blue eyes. And that's what disturbed me. <laughs> See, we like to shape Jesus into our own image. And not just his appearance, like I witnessed, but everything about him, who he is, what he does, what he cares about, what Jesus himself believes, what his own purposes are. You know how video games sometimes give you like a thousand different options to like tweak your character to change so that it looks almost exactly like you, this character of yours? Sadly, this is too often how we approach the Jesus of Scripture, isn't it? We want Him to look like us. We want Him to say things that we like to say. We like Him to think like us. We like Jesus to get on board with the things that we are on board with. To dislike the things that we dislike. But whenever we do this, whenever we shape Jesus into our own image, here's the problem. Not only is that idolatry, that's bad, but it also does this. It sets you up for the perjury. It's just a matter of time you will stop following Jesus in your image. Think about it. Why lay down your life for a person that thinks and looks just like you? Why depend at your deepest moments on a person that you've invented? Why endure hardship? Why endure costly decisions for a person who bends and flexes to your preferences? The ancient congregation of Hebrews was drifting from Jesus. And what I find amazing is instead of scolding this congregation, the author of Hebrews just points them to the real Jesus. I mean, in a way, it's a master class in pastoral theology. It's a master class in preaching, even. Only an encounter with the real Jesus will keep them and us from walking away. I often share this well-known story about Professor N.T. Wright. He used to teach an introductory class on Christianity in his graduate students, to his graduate students. And most of his graduate students or even undergraduate students, they didn't believe in God. They had to take this class by requirement. And they would often say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. And N.T. Wright would respond, well, tell me about this God you don't believe in. I I honestly want to know. And after they were finished, he would often say, well, that makes two of us. I don't believe in that God either. Wright knew that many people who fall away from God are actually falling away from a God in their own image. From the wrong thing. And so he spends the rest of his semester pointing to the real God. Hebrews has the power of doing the same. See, Hebrews deconstructs our false Jesus. And in its place, pastorally reconstructs the real Jesus. Why? So that we stay with him. That's the heartbeat of Hebrews. Hebrews. Stay with the real Jesus. Don't drift. Because again, a Jesus in our own image will not sustain a lifetime of discipleship. We will only follow the real Jesus for a lifetime. But for us to do this work, this hard work of deconstructing the false Jesus that we follow and reconstructing the real Jesus, we have to be hungry for it. We have to be hungry for it, because it is really hard work. Uh, One scholar admits that chapter 7, the, the chapter we just engaged together and I'm quoting the scholar this is a complicated chapter and if someone who devotes their whole life to studying scripture can say this is a complicated chapter then you might be feeling better this morning about what you just encountered in chapter 7 but then the scholar reminds us we were warned in chapter 5 and if you have a bible you could look at the end of chapter 5, this is the solid food that we were warned about. So then in chapter 10 it says, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then later on, in verse 14 of chapter 5, solid food is for the mature for those who have the powers of discernment. And so what Hebrews is saying is, in order to really engage this Melchizedek stuff, you have to be hungry you have to be hungry for it hungry for solid food and it kind of makes me think that lifelong discipleship of Jesus the real Jesus not the Jesus of our own imagination the real Jesus as he's revealed himself it's not like drinking a milkshake at Shake Shack which I did last time I got vanilla it's delicious it's not hard I don't even use my teeth. <laughs> Apprenticeship with Jesus, as it's been called, is more like chewing on an apple. It requires chewing. It requires effort. And that's a good thing. It's honoring to our hunger. So this morning we have to chew. We have to chew on the Old Testament priesthood. We have to chew on Abraham. We have to chew on this very mysterious interaction in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek and Abraham. Andrew read these three or four verses for us. Suli read them last week as a sort of primer. But here's a refresher if you forget. Melchizedek is this priest king, this mysterious priest king uh, of Jerusalem, of what will later, later be called Jerusalem. And this priest-king named Melchizedek sort of enters into the story of God in Genesis 14, kind of out of nowhere, completely out of left field, and brings bread and wine to the table, and blesses Abraham. And Abraham, in response, brings a tithe to Melchizedek. And this is not just a surprising, weird encounter. It's absolutely upside down. It's topsy-turvy to what we would expect as readers of scripture, We would expect the called one, right? Abraham, the one who is blessed to be a blessing. We would expect Abraham to bless Melchizedek, wouldn't we? But instead, we see the other way around. It's Melchizedek who brings bread and wine, who blesses Abraham. And because Abraham will eventually be sort of the, the grandfather of the Levitical priesthood, we would expect, again, Melchizedek to give Abraham tithes. That would make sense. Because the Levites received tithes. And Abraham, as a kind of representative of what would come with the Levitical priesthood, we would expect this strange out of the left field character named Melchizedek to be like, okay, I'm like, clearly here to be blessed by you. I'm clearly here for you to bring the bread and wine. And I'm clearly here for me to tithe to you. But that's not how it works, it's upside down. And then it's over as soon as it begins. And we don't hear anything about Melchizedek until that strange little verse in Psalm 110, which we also heard read this morning. So let me just name the question that might be on your mind. How on earth is this solid food? How is this nutritious? How does this help me stay close to Jesus when I'm just like that close from leaving What are you thinking, preacher of Hebrews? What does Melchizedek have to do with me? Well, as we saw in chapter 8, verse 1, if you want to encounter the real Jesus, you have to go through Melchizedek. That's what verse 1 of chapter 8 says. We have such a high priest. I think this is another way of saying we have a surprising high priest. Because the original audience knew what a high priest is, and so the author of Hebrews says we have such a high priest. This high priest explodes your expectations. This is a surprising high priest. In fact, if you look at the text again, directly before chapter 7, verse 26, and even verse 17 of chapter 7, it tells us that Jesus was a high priest. But again, not as the readers of the Old Testament would expect. Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as we said, readers of the Old Testament would expect a high priest to be from Levi. But verse 14 reminds us that's not a problem because Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is such a high priest. Now let's just explore for the remaining time we have how that makes Jesus unique. The author of Hebrews draws out at least four ways. Let me start with permanence. The surprising priesthood of the real Jesus, okay, the real Jesus, his priesthood is permanent. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is a forever priest. Take a look at verse 3. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So now in those days, legitimacy was determined by lineage, and this was especially true if you were in the priesthood. But Melchizedek is unique because his lineage is not just not Levitical. His lineage is just not on the page. It's just nowhere stated. As I said, it just sort of comes onto the scene and leaves. And it's just a mystery, this mystery that Hebrews really exploits and says, exactly. His priesthood was not marked by death. His priesthood was not marked by succession. His priesthood was not interrupted by death. His priesthood just is. This strange Melchizedek's priesthood just is. It's a forever priesthood. And so verse 15 connects the dots for us. Jesus' priesthood is also forever. Jesus' priesthood is not rooted in the family of Levi, but because of his resurrection, his indestructible life, the end of verse 16, Jesus has no successor. He is alive. He is a forever priest. Now why is this important? Well, you may not realize this, or wake up thinking this, or pondering this, but what you need most, in all, of, like what you need most, if you were to do an audit in your life today and say, what do I need most today? Verse 23 would say, what you need most today is a 400 priest. Again, you may not think that, but that's what Scripture says. And verse 23 tells us why. former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death for continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And here's the catch. Verse 25. Because of this forever priesthood, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, here we see the Levitical priesthood was a gift from God that it had its limits It it was marked by death. It always ended and then restarted. Ended and restarted. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Death does not interrupt his ministry to you. He is your forever intercessor. And that's what you need most. The second shocking thing about Jesus' priesthood is that it's perfect. If you look at the text, I won't read it again, but verses 1-10, through the whole point of this first section of chapter 7 is to demonstrate how this ancient, strange, weird character, Melchizedek, is shockingly superior. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus. He is also a forever priest. As I said, he symbolically receives tithes from the Levitical priests. He blesses the blessed to be a blessing one. And this all adds up to verse 7, which shockingly says, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, the Levitical priesthood in our Old Testament was good. It was very good. It's God's idea. And God doesn't make junk. But the priesthood of Melchizedek, and what Melchizedek points to is better. Better. It's just better. It's somehow better. Better. Verses 18 through 19 and verse 22, if you look down, says it's better. But here's the thing Melchizedek was better with something better behind it, Jesus. Jesus is something better with nothing better behind it. So we could say Jesus is best. Or, to quote Hebrews, perfect. Verse 11, verse 28. Again, this does not mean the Old Testament is bad. Hebrews is not comparing bad with good. Hebrews is comparing very good with perfect. Jesus is perfect. He is the perfect priest. One scholar says, the Old Covenant could not perfect anything. It could only point to such perfection. And then third... The surprising priesthood of Jesus is marked by promise. It's not accidental. Verse 20 says, as we saw, this promise of a priest like Melchizedek was the result of an oath, even in Psalm 110. As we saw last week, if you were with us, God doesn't need to make oaths, God doesn't lie. I mean, oaths by definition are let's bring God into this promise, this promise between two people. If I could bring God into this, then you will feel the weight of what I'm promising. Because if I do not follow through on my promise, then may God get involved. Well, God, by definition, doesn't need to get involved with His own promises. But He does it anyway. To make a point, I promise on myself to send the forever King who is also a forever priest. That's what God is saying. I think it's absolutely stunning that this four verse character, we could call him a Kizunek, this four verse character, who seems to waltz on to God's story and off to God's story as soon as he waltz on it, is one of the most important Old Testament <laughs> figures in the story of God. You all know this. I love talking about J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter because she wrote the last chapter of her saga first. And so it's no accident that she was dropping all kinds of hints about the climax of her story in book one. Small spoiler alert, but it's been a long time. You know, I was like in high school when these books came out. But go ahead and plug your ears if if, if you're really looking forward to the surprise. I won't do that. But I was reminded by an article about how in book one, Firenze, the centaur, rescues Harry from Voldemort in the Forbidden Forest. Do you recall? His fellow centaurs get mad. Why? For messing with destiny. We readers didn't realize at the time how important and how even revealing that statement is. those who know how the story ends, that was almost a spoiler in itself. In the same way, one scholar says the presence of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is a key example of God dropping hints about how his rescue mission would unfold in even climax. God would rescue us with a forever priest like Melchizedek. And those with eyes to see, see it. And Hebrews sees it. Which takes us to our fourth and final surprise. Melchizedek tells us something about Jesus, and that is that Jesus, as our forever priest, pleads for us. Take a look at verse 24. He holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. And we talked about this verse. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, through the high priest, since he lives always to make intercession for them. I think those two words, through him and for them, is like the gospel in four words. And two prepositional phrases. Okay, Through Jesus, we have access to God forever. Because Jesus makes intercession for them, on behalf of you. A forever priesthood means Jesus always lives to plead for his people. Levitical priesthood made intercession. Of course they did. But it was imperfect, and it was always broken up by their own death. And even an imperfect sacrifice, it had to continually be given. But a forever priest, perfectly and perpetually, pleads for his people. That's a lot of alliteration I just made, I realize. But it's true! It's true! He is perfectly and perpetually pleading for you. Right now, as I preach, and with my feeble words, trying to make the most of these amazing verses, right now, at this very moment, Jesus is pleading your name before the Lord. Praying for you. Keeping you. I love these words from Ben Witherington. He says, We're not to envision someone pleading and begging a reluctant father. Jesus is an enthroned high priest. And God always hears his pleas instantly. I got a message, a text message from my mother-in-law last week, and she wants to know the date of an important meeting that I have coming up. Why? Well. She wants to intercede for me. She wants to plead for me before the Father. She wants to pray for me. You know how we like throw that phrase around, I'll pray for you. You Um, I've gotten to know there are some people when they say it, they they actually do it. And she's one of them. And so knowing that she's praying for me at that meeting and during that meeting, it encourages me. Of course it does. It just encourages me so much. How much more Encouragement could I receive from the knowledge that Jesus is praying for me, even as I preach, even as I stand here, by name. In you, your name. God delights in the prayers of his enthroned priest king who is naming you before his time It's amazing. So what does Melchizedek have to do with you? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Because we have to go through Melchizedek to see the real Jesus. And when we do, we see that the real Jesus is a permanent priest a perfect priest, the promised priest who is always pleading for you. Let me ask you this. Are you hungry for intimacy? Are you hungry for real intimacy? Being fully known and fully loved at the same time and to the same extent. This fully known before the one who knows all and this being fully loved by the one who is loved That describes the intimacy with God that our hearts were made for. And we search for that intimacy in so many corners of this world, don't we? We search for that perfect, fully known, and fully loved that we get tastes of with good friendships. We get tastes of this in communities, church communities that are healthy. We get tastes of this from others. Oh, but that is just a drop in the bucket of what the Lord has. Jesus is the forever priest-king who provides this intimacy. You can draw near to God in his presence. You can be in his full presence, fully known and fully loved, because Jesus is there. Are you hungry for that? Are you insecure this morning, feeling like, who has imposter syndrome this morning at church? I mean, honestly. Maybe you're secretly afraid, despite all of your efforts, that God doesn't like you. Or that the people sitting around you just doesn't like you. And if they really knew the real me, they would stop liking me. And so we carry around this imposter syndrome in church, outside of church. Well, Jesus, as we see here, is the forever priest who provides the security that you deserve. He saves you, it says, to the uttermost. And let me just ask you this. How big is that word uttermost in your life? Is it big enough to include your whole story? What parts of your story are you leaving outside of the uttermost that Jesus saves you? What would it mean to take Jesus at his word this morning and include all of who you are, all parts of you, under this word uttermost? You can, and he invites you to. Lastly, I'll just ask are you exhausted? Are you exhausted trying to prove God? and others that you're lovable. That is a very exhausting life mission. I want to show God and others that I am lovable. That is exhausting. Are you tired of performing? But you don't know a way out of this religious performance, except literally walking out. What well, Jesus says here it is your forever priest king who provides the rest you desire. His sacrifice was, and I could preach a whole sermon on this phrase, once and what happened on the cross was not just a massive miscarriage of justice by the Roman Empire though it was on an innocent life it was also an offering and Hebrews tells us this it was an offering, Jesus does not just make an offering, he is an offering, in fact he's not an offering he's the offering he is a perfect offering he is the perfect once and for all offering which means if your trust is in him you can rest Rest. Stop trying to be lovable. Stop trying to rescue yourself. You can step off what Jerry Bridges calls the performance treadmill. You can step off of it. I'm told that in Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, which I've not read, we encountered a statement. <laughs> you yeah, know, what's that make me? <laughs> uh, we're I'm told that there's a statement that I've heard before. Beauty will save the world. Humans are sustained to, and sustained by, and even drawn to, like moths are delight, light, like the beauty. We just aren't. Well, for us to keep walking with Jesus, we need to see His beauty. We need to see who He is really. And that's the problem with Jesus in our own image. It diminishes His real beauty. I want you to allow Melchizedek to reveal the beauty of Jesus to you. That's the only way we'll keep walking. And so Lord, would you indeed do that? Lord, we have scratched the surface of what and who you are, but would today's meditation be one step in the correct direction of getting to know the real you? Would we lay aside our own ideas about who you are, who you ought to be, and instead would we rest in the real Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.